Here's what we're going to talk about today. Even religious people need Jesus. When I came to faith back in the 1970s, um, it was, a book was recommended to me that had a, a, a huge impact on my early life as a, as a follower of Christ. And the name of that book was How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And of course, the title just got my attention right off the bat. And also, it was a very small book, and it was full of cartoons, <laughs> so I could understand it. And um, one of the, you know, the main focus was without being religious. And um, the concepts that were presented in the book kind of helped me a lot. And religion was described as man trying to make um, himself good enough to be accepted by God. Uh, it, was, it was human. Religion is human-centered. Uh, humanity trying to pick itself up by the bootstraps by, you know, improving their lives. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with improving your life. But it, when you do things in your own strength doesn't help anyone about having a relationship with God. The religious person then was performance-driven. The good news is that's not Christianity. That, you know, the religious person, in this perspective, this applies to people who uh, sometimes think they're Christians because they go to a church, because they do Christian kinds of things, but it, it applies to all religions, where people are trying self-improvement to be good enough for whatever that next step is. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is about God reaching down to us right where we are because we're sinners. We got our own problems, and we are not good enough. And the truth is we will never be good enough to be accepted by God in our own strength. The good news is Jesus died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin. And the good news is the sin penalty is paid for in total by Jesus and we can't do anything to add to it. Um, God does not want us to work our way to heaven. God has provided the way to heaven already. The religious person tries to reach God in their own strength. The genuine Christian accepts by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us. Today, Jesus encounters a religious person. And that's what we're going to look at in our passage in John chapter 3. Jesus encounters a religious person. So I'm going to read the first eight verses of this passage. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So that'll get us started in our passage today. And uh, so Jesus encounters this religious person. And we see the curious religious person right off in verses 1 and 2. Um, and, and we start with his credentials because this is a big deal in the first century. This guy is important. He's an influential leader. Uh, in John chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a Pharisee. So he's a this is professional clergy of the highest sorts. He is trained in conservative Old Testament theology. He has a high view of Scripture. He would take Scripture literally, much like we would in many ways. Um, the difficulty with Pharisees were that they were prone to add things to God's uh, what God said. You know, God already had 613 commands in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees just loved to add hundreds and hundreds of more commands for people to do to keep the rules. Um, you know, some of you heard me say this before, but like one of them would be, um, you, you cannot spit on the Sabbath because you might um, actually, when you hit the grass, uh, water the grass. Or you can't walk uh, on the grass on the Sabbath because you might pick up a, a, a grass seed and carry it and sow it, and that would be work. You'd be violating the Sabbath. And then I just learned of this one. To me, this one's pretty funny. Um, a woman cannot look in the, in the mirror on the Sabbath for fear she might find a gray hair and pull it out. <laughs> and that would be work. People were vain even in the first century. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, and we see his name, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, he's important. The ruling council in Jerusalem was called the Sanhedrin. And uh, the way I view them, they would be like the U.S. Senate and the Supreme Court wound up all into one, centered in Jerusalem, which is their religious center in the nation of Israel. It's made up of 70 men, and it included both Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees were the conservatives. They had a high view of Scripture, except they were legalists. The Sadducees had a liberal view of theology. They were much more rational. They did not accept miracles. They did not accept the, that angels were real. They did not accept the resurrection of the dead. You can see there are some problems with their perspective. But both of them, both groups, represent the, you know, some politics are involved. Both groups are in the Sanhedrin, 70 men. Um, we see the curiosity of Nicodemus in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. 
and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Why? For no one can do the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So this is uh, Nick at night. Why at night? We don't know why he came tonight, but it's entirely possible he came because he wanted to come secretly. Um, think about this. Nicodemus is a highly educated religious professional. Jesus has no formal education. Nicodemus is a teacher, a rabbi, recognized not just a teacher, but we see as the text develops, he is a teacher of teachers. And anybody who's a Pharisee that's on the uh, Sanhedrin, they're a big deal. And so this is Nicodemus. And Jesus is just a working class carpenter. And so he comes to Jesus at night. Now, this, this was, he comes in humility. He'd have to, to come to Jesus. Um, now, also, do you remember uh, what happened in John chapter 2? Just right before John chapter 3. And in, in John chapter 2, we saw how Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem and he drove out the animals and the money changers because this was God's house. He, he cleared it. Uh, we, we can say he, he cleansed the temple. He got rid of that which was inappropriate, that which was evil because, because this was to be a place of prayer. And not only that, it was in the place in the court of the Gentiles. You know, there are people there who were looking for God and they sort of put in all of this uh, economic development uh, and replace this place of prayer. So uh, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, and you know what? The, the Pharisees aren't responsible for the temple. The, the, the Sadducees are. The, the, the priesthood is. Um, and, but yet Nicodemus knows what happened at the temple because he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And those people are not happy with Jesus. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And then he says, uh, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you're, you're from God. How? No one could perform the signs that you're doing. Now, that's a commendation. That's a compliment on the part of Nicodemus. Nicodemus recognizes this isn't just you know, somebody trying to talk about magic and, and fool people. He, he, he knows enough about what Jesus has been doing, what Jesus has been saying. He probably knows a lot about John the Baptist also, what John the Baptist had been about. Um, the Sanhedrin knew about these things. Nicodemus probably even went and listened to Jesus teach at different times uh, when he was in Jerusalem. And he says, we know we don't know who the we is. I don't think it's all the Sanhedrin. But there are other people like Nicodemus who are getting something is up with God right now. And he said, no one can perform the signs that you do. Signs are miracles. Remember, signs uh, authenticate the messenger and the, and the, and the message. They, they were attention getters. They, they, they caused people to pay attention 
What's being said? What is God doing? God is, God is doing something new. And so Nicodemus is sincerely curious. He's looking for answers. He wants to talk to Jesus in person. He wants to know if Jesus is the real deal. Maybe some of you want to know that too. Is Jesus the real deal? Is Jesus who he says he is? That's a big question. It's an important question. So Nicodemus humbly acknowledges that he thinks that Jesus is from God. And that's how he approaches Jesus. But Jesus is now going to change the conversation uh, in verses 3 through 8. And we have the new birth conversation. And uh, Jesus starts with a stipulation. Uh, I forgot to read to you. Uh, I was going to start with verse 25, but I'll read verse 25 to you. So go, where we left off last week, John chapter 2, verses, uh, when we got, the last verse was verse 25. By the way, the more you tune in to these week after week, the more the big picture fits together. Um, John chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, this is, refers to Jesus, and John writes, He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knew what was in each person. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus. And Jesus still knows what's in our hearts today. And so, uh, in, John, in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus replied, very, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Um, that can be taken in two different ways. Born again is, a, is an accurate translation, but it also can be translated born from above. Guess what? That's also an accurate translation. Jesus is saying, you need to be born from above. Now, G Jesus doesn't commend Nicodemus for liking his miracles. You would think Jesus should start out, well, thank you, Nicodemus, you know. He doesn't. He just goes, uh, he knows what's in Nicodemus's heart. He knows that there's something deeper that Nicodemus cares about. Nicodemus is wondering if he's really good enough for the kingdom of God, because he's been trying so hard to please God and be accepted by God. And Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. Are born from above. So Jesus was right in his discernment about Nicodemus because Nicodemus comes right back in verse 4 with this question. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? I don't know if this means Nicodemus is old. He, he probably is. I mean, probably twice as Jesus's age because of his stature in the community, to be a teacher of teachers and to be recognized for who he is. He's probably invested some years. How can someone be born when they are old? You see, Nicodemus is a literalist. He takes, a, he takes things at face value. He took the scriptures at face value. He says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their, mother, their mother's womb to be born, um, there's no way 
A person can go back in their mother's tummy and he's just confessing. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. So if you don't understand all the time, you're in really good company because he was really a smart guy and he really knew the scriptures well. And so Jesus seeks to explain uh, his meaning in verses 5 and 6, and we have the explanation. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. It's about entering into God's eternal kingdom. He's talking about entering into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and, he, and Jesus says you must be born of water and you must be born of the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus explains it in verse uh, 6. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus is speaking of two births. Um, one birth is of the flesh, the physical birth. One birth is of the spirit, the spiritual birth. Now, this attempt to understand uh, what it means to be born of water has been given five major views among the commentators. Was it John's baptism required? Was it Christian baptism required? And I think Jesus just explains it. Born of water is about the physical birth, the natural birth, the amniotic fluid that accompanies the birth of every baby, a physical birth. Jesus says you shouldn't be surprised. Verses 7 and 8, now think of Jesus telling Nicodemus, who was a very prestigious religious leader, he says you shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Because Ezekiel 36, verses uh, 26 and 27 speak of this new birth. It's having a new heart. It's for the new covenant. Jesus is saying the new covenant is coming now. He says, you shouldn't be surprised. And then he goes on in verse 8. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. You can see the effects of the wind when the wind blows a flag and you see it. It's either hanging limply or it's blowing in the wind. You can see the effects. You can feel the effects when the wind blows on your face or when the wind blows through your hair. You can't see the wind. You can't see exactly where it came from or exactly where it is going. And in verse 8, Jesus says, So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. For the person born of the Spirit, you can't see the Spirit of God in that person. But you can see the effects of the Spirit's work in their, in their life. When I placed my faith in Christ, my family couldn't see the Holy Spirit in me. They couldn't, they couldn't look at me and say, oh, you got that. But they had to see my life. They had to see if God was changing my life. 
And over days and weeks, um, it became more noticeable. My guilt was removed. That was the first thing that just changed me right off the bat, to know my guilt was removed and to feel like my guilt had been removed. My anger dissipated. I, I didn't know I was angry a lot of the times, but it began to dissipate. And sure, I've always struggled with anger sometimes, but not like the old days. Um, love and kindness began to take hold in my life. The work of the Holy Spirit. God's grace was real, and we see it by the effects. That's what Jesus is saying. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. For everyone who has that new birth. We come to verses 9 through 15. This is the very last section. And the dialogue uh, with Jesus and the, and, uh, the religious Nicodemus con con continues. And we have the new birth provision. And so Jesus is going to challenge Nicodemus in, in uh, verses 9 through 13. And, and, he, and Nicodemus says, how can this be? This being born of the Spirit. I don't get it. How can this be? Jesus says, you are, a, are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Um, nope, he doesn't. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's, he's a teacher in Israel. In fact, there's a definite article here that says the teacher in Israel. Um, he's, he's pretty important. He may be the most important teacher in Jerusalem. Um, he's a teacher of teachers. He's among the greatest teachers, yet he doesn't understand. And so Jesus challenges Nicodemus. How can you, a teacher, not understand this? Because this has been spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. Not, in, not specifically the way Jesus described it, not the way Jesus revealed it, but there were lots of clues that alluded to this. The new covenant, that was pretty clear. And the description of the new covenant was pretty clear. Uh, hearts of stone would be changed. Jesus continues in verse 11. He says, Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Jesus speaks as we. Who's that? Well, very likely, it's a reference to his Father and to the Holy Spirit. And he said, We have been giving you information. We have been bearing witness about these things. And yet, you people, you, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the family of God's Messiah, aren't getting it because your hearts are cold. You've created your own system, and you've left God out of it a lot.
One of the things about John chapter 3, we see, and we, we see this through the whole book, but the themes that are mentioned in John chapter 1 continue to unfold in the book. For in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came to his own, yet his, the, his own received him not. His own people. He came to his own people, but most of them don't get it at that time. And Jesus says, verse 12, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. He spoke about water. He spoke about fleshly birth. He spoke about uh, the wind. He says, if I, if I speak to you about things in your world, how then, and you don't understand what I'm trying to tell you, how are you going to understand if I start telling you about things from heaven? Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Let's go back to John chapter 1 again, and I'm, I'm going to read just uh, verse 18 in John chapter 1. This is, this is the last verse in, in the prologue, in that introduction, where he, John introduces themes to the whole book. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, and has made him known. Jesus has made God known. Jesus has made the Father known. And Jesus is God. No one has ever seen God, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And for somebody to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be born from above. It is the Son who came from above. Verse 14, we see the provision. And so Jesus explains. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So, Jesus refers back to a small little event that happens in Numbers chapter uh, 21, verses 4 through 9. It's kind of fast. It's not, there's not a lot of great detail about this event. But um, God's people, Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness for that 40-year period, it, it, it takes up a lot of the, old, uh, the first five books, uh, Exodus 12 and through uh, Deuteronomy and uh, God's people began to complain at God. God's people weren't happy with how he provided for them. Um, God's people didn't like the food. They didn't like the testing. And they just complained. They were impatient. They wouldn't wait for God to continue to lead them. And sometimes God disciplines his children. And he sent them snakes, venomous snakes. And they bit some of those Israelites. And many of them died. And God's people humbled themselves, confessing their sin. And so God gave them a provision, a new provision. And he had Moses make a, a snake made out of bronze. And Moses put that bronze snake up on a pole. And God said to Israel, 
those people who have been bitten by the snakes, which was a pretty big number. All you have to do is look at the snake and you'll be healed. This snake is lifted up for you. And if you look at that, you will be healed. And they were. Now, that's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? But there was more to it than just that event because it would be a kind of a type of Christ. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. You see, the snake caused people's deaths. And when they obeyed God's instructions, that's take, whenever you obey God, that's taking him by faith. That's trusting what God says enough for you to do what he says. And so they did what God said. And God allowed them to live. And Jesus is saying in the same way, the Son of Man will also be lifted up. And this is going to be a prophecy of the crucifixion. It's going to be three more years. But Jesus will be lifted up as well. And he will be nailed to, to the cross. And when people look at him and trust him, he gives them life and he heals them from their sin. Just like that. And Jesus will be lifted up. So Jesus is predicting his own death, which will be God's provision. Like the bronze snake was God's provision, Jesus dying on the cross will be God's provision. Later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Peter describes this in more detail in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. And so the Apostle Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the un unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Christ suffered once, referring to the crucifixion. It only, happened, only needed to happen once. It was totally sufficient. The penalty of sin for the entire world, which includes us, was paid for when Christ died on the cross. It was enough to cover all sin for all time for every person. That's good news. The good news is the sin penalty has already been paid for in full. And yet there are still people who think they're, they're going to try to be accepted by God in their own little way of doing it. And he says, and Peter says, it is the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one is Jesus. He is totally righteous, but there is no sin in him. He's the righteous for the unrighteous, and that's us because we are all sinners. We've all failed God at, a different, at different times in different ways, whether it's our actions or whether it's our thought life. We've all failed God. And why did he do this? 
to bring you to God, to bring us into a personal relationship with God. God wants to be in a relationship with you. He went, he went into great trouble to do that, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus died a real death. Uh, sometimes people just, oh, some kind of uh, mystery, mysterious thing, you know, he didn't really die or whatever. Um, he died a physical death that was very real, very painful. He suffered greatly. But the good news is he was made alive in the spirit. He was, his body was resurrected from the grave, and that demonstrates his victory over sin and his victory over death and even his victory over the power of Satan because he has a position way above Satan and all demons. And sometimes people don't realize this. Jesus is still alive today. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's, you know, he's not dead. We don't, we don't follow a dead Savior. We, we follow a living Savior. And so Jesus wants to give us the requirement that, that he has in verse 15. And um, verse 15 says, verse 14, just as Moses was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up Verse 15, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Everyone who believes in the one who was lifted up. This is God's provision for our sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And today we have a choice. The choice is to believe what God said about his son or to ignore it or reject it. So my question is, is what about you? Have, you? have you already made a decision? Have you made a decision about what you think about Jesus? Now, I know a lot of you already have. That's awesome. Some of you are thinking about it, and I just want to encourage you to take that step if that's you. To consider placing your faith to make that decision to trust Jesus to save you from the penalty of your own sin. Um, Nicodemus was a very religious person. He already believed in God. He believed that God existed. He already trusted the Old Testament scriptures. He already knew the Old Testament scriptures. And he was trying to keep God's rules in his own strength. But being religious doesn't save you from your sins. Only Jesus can do it. And he is the only way. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote these words around 62 AD. This is 30 years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace. This is a description of a person who's been born again, a description of a person who's been born from above. 
It's by grace, God's unmerited favor. It's a God thing. He did it, and I don't deserve it. It's through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Um, you know, it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about trying to be a good person. It's not about being religious. It is the gift of God. It's God's provision. It's God's solution to our problem. Um, it's not by works so that no one can boast because if it was about tabulating a bunch of good things that we could do, we would keep track. And when we got ahead of other people, we would let them know that we're doing better than they're doing. And they should be more like us. And that might lead to pride. In fact, it normally does. But it's totally a God thing. And it's about trusting in him. And when we trust in him and we follow him, that leads to humility instead of pride. It's a choice. Having a relationship with God is a choice. If you've never made that choice, consider making that choice today. And it's about expressing your faith. And you can talk to him in prayer. Just be yourself and talk to him in prayer. A prayer could be something like this. Uh, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for me. And he provided my salvation. Thank you, God. It could be that simple. And, um, and, you, and you can ask him to help you to learn to follow Jesus, to become a follower of, of Jesus Christ. Today, as we um, close our service, we're going to celebrate communion together. And um, up front on these two tables, here is the, this, you know, this is what COVID brought. There's a cup. And it has the bread and the juice in it. And it has two top layers. And you take one top off, and then, then there's a bread. And, you, and then you take the second top off, and then there's uh, the, the grape juice. Um, when we do this, we remember Jesus. That's why, that's why he, Jesus gave the instructions, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we do this, because one, he commanded it, and so we want to obey. And we want to just take time, because we have a tendency to forget some of the most important things. And that Jesus died for us is one of the most, if it's not the most important thing, to reflect. Uh, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve my salvation, and Jesus died for me. That is really good news. And so uh, we're going to just take... Um, a moment to pause. And um, Scripture says we should examine our own lives before we take this time to share this together. This is one time where um, God kind of commands the church to sit down together and make sure that this place is cleaned up on the inside, our hearts. And so we examine our lives 
and we have a chance if there if there's anything between God and us right now we can we can ask God to to forgive us we have this promise it's a beautiful promise first John 1 9 if we confess our sins he that is God is faithful and will purify us of all unrighteousness now that's for a child of God that's not for someone who doesn't know Jesus that's a family term that's for children of God so they can make it right with their father and so let's just bow our hearts and bow our heads together and just take a time to reflect and ask God to search your heart and let you know if there's anything that's inappropriate in your life between him and you. And if there's sin, just silently and privately be honest with God and confess your sin to him. And while our heads are still bowed, if, if you're here today and you've never made that decision, that choice to trust in Christ, I want to encourage you to do that even right now. And you could do that just as we're sitting here by making this your prayer. Dear God, I, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me as your provision for my salvation. Thank you, God. Help me to grow in my understanding of what it means to follow Christ. And for all of us, God, I just want to pray and give you thanks that Jesus died for us. And I thank you right now for the bread that represents his body that reminds us of the cost of our salvation, that reminds us of the suffering that Jesus experienced, that reminds us of his pain for us, his love for us, that reminds us of his death. Thank you also for the cup that represents his blood that was shed on our behalf, that was a payment for our sin, that was our redemption. Thank you that Jesus took my place, that I, though I deserve the death, Jesus took the death on himself. And that whole penalty for sin has been paid for. Thank you, God, for the bread in the cup. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. So we have an open communion. If you are a follower of Christ, we welcome you to come up to the front and um, I think come down these main aisles and then maybe go back to your seat by going to the, the outside. And you can take the communion whenever you're ready.